The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. So there's a wonderful website called theconversation.com and it features the articles and writings of various academics from around the world and they focus on a diverse selection of topics. Recently, Dr. Nick Longrich, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry at the Milner Center for Evolution in the UK, wrote an article looking at when and how did we become fully human and what fossils and DNA tell us about the evolution of modern intelligence. So the question was, when did we become human? When were we just uh, simple Neanderthals? And at what point did we suddenly start to show more advanced technology? Things like representational art, things like creating projectile weapons. And this is described by Professor or Dr. Longridge as the Great Leap, the point where we started as, uh, as the Neanderthal and then grew into something far more human the Homo sapien, when we first truly appeared. The Great Leap, we asked him, Dr. Uh, Nick Longridge, let's start with the idea of what the Great Leap was. So there was an idea uh, from archaeology. I seem to remember that I read it all the way back in high school in in a book by Jared Diamond. And the idea is that there is a sudden advance in human intellectual capabilities fairly recently, like around... I think at the time they thought maybe thirty or 40,000 years, they pushed that back a little. And the idea was that suddenly human artifacts get more complicated. We start seeing complex cave art. We start seeing more sophisticated weapons like bows and spear throwers and different types of behaviors. And these reflect sort of a, a final evolution of a modern human mind. And it, it always struck me that this didn't quite make sense because what we knew of yeah. humans from, from DNA was that we evolved long before this. So, 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 Dr. Longrich, the question I suppose one has to ask is, I mean, you call it the Great Leap, but if Homo yeah. sapien ap- appeared 200, like, or if 200, 300,000 years after Homo sapien first appeared, um, yeah. it, was all, it was all very, very simple. What was it that suddenly made them go, woo, suddenly into becoming spear throwers, they started to make representational art? What was it that took that that changed them from just being sort of hulking, sort of, I don't even, you know, basic, basic homo sapiens, but what shifted them into the modern hunter-gatherer? Yeah, I mean, that was the big question. I kept wondering about that. If if it really is the case that, I mean, the problem with artifacts is they don't tell you a lot about how smart the person is. I mean, you know, if you you look at, like, say, uh, ancient philosophers like, like Buddha or or Plato, they're very intelligent people, but they didn't have smartphones, so that, that doesn't make them dumb, it just means they didn't have advanced technology. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, you can have very intelligent people who just didn't have advanced technology, and maybe intelligence evolves first and technology later. But then you have this issue, okay, why, why does technology change so much? And yeah, my, my idea, it's a bit speculative, I, I admit, but I, my idea is that... Um, Cultural sophistication isn't just about how smart any one person is. It's about all yeah. it's about all the people around you who help build that culture. And huh. so the iPhone isn't a, isn't a product of a single individual, uh, or you know, a computer isn't a product of a single individual, but millions of people who help build the technology and help build science and advance things. So maybe we're just more people. And so what we see is 
you know, maybe around 100,000 years ago, people move out of Africa and they start taking more territory, and there's just more people on the planet. And with more people on the planet, they just start coming up with more ideas. So, so what's interesting is you, you're suggesting then that culture is community, not is community, but culture is community in order to be creative, if one wants to look at it like that. Yeah, I mean, culture is, is it's emergent. It's not the, the result of any one person, but, but thousands or millions of people. And yeah. I was struck by, um, a few years ago, uh, in, in the U.S., the Pentagon wanted to build a very complex computer. And in the yeah. past, they would build computers with one really powerful processor. And that was how they got more and more processing power. But instead, what they decided to do is they wired together a number of of less powerful processors. Actually, they were, they were video game processors from the, the PlayStation 3. And they took 2,000 PlayStation 3s and they connected them all together and wired them to make the most powerful yeah. computer in the world. And so one way you can get very, very powerful systems, very complex systems capable of processing information is just have lots of processors. So if people started producing larger tribes and the tribes start communicating with each other and there's just more people on, on the planet, you'll get much more sophisticated cultures. That's the idea. So, Prof, if we look at it as such, is um, the idea that at a certain point we shifted and evolved into sentient beings? And are you saying that the sentience is around things like representational art, around complex weapons, etc.? I mean, it's technology in its own form. Well, it's, I think, you know, we're, we're more than our technology. And, yeah. you know, it, what, it, what it implies, if, if you look at our DNA, it seems to imp, imp, imply that we probably originated maybe 250,000 years ago, let's say. And if you kind of look yeah. at all modern people, and we all have fairly, we all, we all do the same basic things. We, we have yeah. complex language, and we have art and music and dance and warfare, ornament, uh, mythology spirituality, and these capacities are, are, are presumably very ancient and were in this ancestral population. So yeah. I, I think it's just kind of a, a different way of looking at our humanity, not in terms of our, our weapons and our tools, but just in terms of, you know, our, our human nature. And I think human nature is very ancient, and these technologies uh, don't really define how human we are or aren't. So would you then say, well, I suppose the question, Doc, is that we would then have to ask what, what, what we can learn from this in today's age? I think, what would we learn from it? I, I think if, if, if this idea of kind of uh, the cultural complexity emerges from not just individual people, but just the interactions, I think it. Yeah. It emphasizes how important it is that, that we interact with each other, that we do, you know, cooperate and exchange ideas, and this exchange of ideas between cultures that really leads to the complexity and, and vibrance of society. And that's sort of what fuels this is, uh, looking back through prehistory and history, what I'm struck by is that, you know, the inventions of the modern age are caused by the interactions of all these different peoples, yeah. If you look at something like Western civilization, for example, it's not really Western. It's, it's the interaction between people.
peoples in Rome and Greece and Turkey and Africa exchanging ideas across the Mediterranean and then technology from China. And so I think what fuels progress is us talking to each other and interacting. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you use a word like interaction and cooperation. I mean, it's interaction, cooperation, collaboration. And it comes at such a profoundly strange time where we aren't necessarily able to interact physically anymore because of COVID. Um, we're yeah. having, to re- having to rethink, even in the business world, how we operate. What does it mean to collaborate and to cooperate? It's, it's, it's profoundly pertinent now because of that, in a way. Yeah, you're right. But it is part of, if we think of, to the extent that our culture is built on these interactions, I mean, humans are fundamentally, if you go back and taking the long view, um, fundamentally, humans are social animals. And we, we evolved to live in, in groups, uh, originally small bands and tribes, and spend time around each other. And yeah. we can, to a degree, still interact like I'm talking to you over the phone. And that's, that's something we couldn't do 250,000 years ago. I couldn't call someone on the other end of the earth. But at the same time, these simple interactions that were very simple back then, you know, people interacting with a campfire, that's harder and harder these, these days. So the, the way in which we interact has profoundly changed. I mean, partly because, you know, COVID, but also just the modern world. And in some ways for the better, in some ways for the worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose it would be interesting to know from someone like yourself who does look and works at the Milner Center for Evolution what COVID actually means for you and what you think it means for humanity. I mean, is this another one of those great leaps that may shift and change things dramatically? It's, it's a hard one. If you look back through history, um, there's, there's a really great book that's worth reading called Plagues and Peoples by William yes. McNeil. Yeah. And basically, when you get large groups of people together, um, I mean, well, one thing it does is it, it increases the exchange of knowledge. And so it, by assembling large groups of people, agricultural societies and cities, civilizations, technology advances. But we also exchanged germs, diseases, bacteria, <laughs> viruses. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's fueled the growth of culture, but it's also created these plagues. And that, it's been going on for thousands of years. And uh, we'll get through this like we did all the rest of them. And uh, But it is, it is a difficult it is difficult. It's, I think in the past they, we weren't as cut off in quite the same way, maybe. Um, but, well, we didn't have the Internet either to, to talk to each other. So is it... My, my sense is that, you know, major transitions and major disasters in life's history tend to accelerate existing trends to a degree. Um, yeah. Things that were getting better get better faster, and things that are getting worse get worse faster to, to a large degree. I think... Yeah. I don't know. I, I think some things will go back to normal. Some things will never go back to normal. Some things will be better, and some things will be worse. And it's really, it's really hard to make predictions. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that maybe what will make us wake up and realize is the extent to which we need each other and face-to-face community and, and contact. That these things are important, and uh, it is, it is a bit of an eye-opener when you start worrying that you might die about what you're actually going to miss, about what's important to you, and what you want to do before you die. Yeah. And, you know, what's important to you and who's important to you. So I think it's, um, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe it'll help us, you know, take stock. Uh, 
You know, maybe, like Dr. Longridge, in closing, it's interesting, there's two terms that you've used here. The one is fairly recently, when you look back um, over time, which I love, mm-hmm. actually, that uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago could be fairly recently. Um, yeah. And then the other one is the long view. And yeah. you know, in the business world, there's short-termism and long-termism. And short-termism is to deal with things with immediate effect, etc. Whereas the long-termism is so much about sustainability. And perhaps, yeah. um, I, I'm wondering if you're thinking perhaps that if we're going to look at the long view, both backwards, but then also forwards, we need to really take a hard, long look at our sustainability and um, how we have emerged after over such a long period of time, but how quickly we could destroy ourselves as well with the short-termism. Yeah, I think, I think we don't think enough about, you know, we're so concerned about whether it's our, our stock price next quarter or, you know, our, what people are saying on social media. That we're, we're too concerned about next week and next year and not, and not the long term. And, yeah. you know, we, we are at a really interesting point in society where I, I think my sense of things is that, you know, we have, we have objectively progressed in, in some amazing ways. We can feed 8 billion people on the planet, and we, we, we are in many ways materially richer than we've ever been. And we are uh, we're also safer for the most part. I mean, not that there isn't violence, not that there isn't poverty, but there's less warfare and more prosperity than at any point in human history. So in, in so many ways, this is the best, best time that there's ever been to be alive. Yeah. And at the same time, reading about like how we used to live as hunter-gatherers, there is something really amazing about these, these cultures. And I think what they were good at was providing for their people in terms of you know, community and their sense of spirituality and their place in the world. So I, you know, for me, it kind of seems like you know, the next great frontier is maybe how do we make a society that works for us psychologically? And I think maybe looking backwards has some answers for that. Absolutely brilliant. Dr. Nick Longrich, Senior Lecturer, Department of Biology and Biochemistry at the Milner Center for Evolution. We apologize for the quality of that sound, but uh, we did think that this was certainly an interview that was well worth looking at. We take the long view forward from the long view back and understand the power and role of community and as we move forward as well.